Should we use Atomidate? Should we use Ketamine? What is the ideal agent? The big deal is the big deal, the primary outcomes. For once, a study actually showed a difference. It may, it may have mortality benefit. That wasn't the primary intent here. What do we want to do differently? What meds do I need? That's a little frightening. Welcome everyone to Critical Care Perspectives in Emergency Medicine. This is Mike Winters from the University of Maryland School of Medicine in Baltimore, Maryland. Thanks so much for joining us on this podcast. We are going to cover another exciting topic, another very common topic, and we're also going to cover a recent article that is hot off the press dealing with a very critical and important aspect of rapid sequence intubation, something that we do on a daily basis almost in our emergency departments and in our intensive care units. But first, as we always do on the podcast, prior to jumping into our education topic this month, let me bring in... Dr. Peter W., Dr. John Greenwood, and Dr. Rob Rodriguez, the quartet here on CCPEM. So, John, I'm going to turn to you first. How are you doing during this podcast? Uh, thanks, Mike. I am doing awesome. I am super excited about this topic. This is something that, as you said, we go through often, but to have some more data out there is super exciting. But on a personal note, things are good. We're through the holiday season into the end of February, and I'm ready for spring. Well, spring is coming to the Northeast here, I think for us in Baltimore and Philly, it is a little bit warmer this week, perhaps a little bit even warmer down in New Orleans. Peter, how are things south of us here? So things are going well. Omicron is on the way down and Carnival is on the way up. And so Mardi Gras followed by French Quarter Festival, followed by Jazz Festival. So everything's on cue as long as a pandemic runs its course. Getting back to some exciting times in New Orleans. And Dr. Rodriguez, our trip over to the West Coast. How does this podcast find you? I love this topic. It comes up every day in our ED and glad we have some information about how to address it. Uh, things on the West Coast are lovely. The spring is here. And I'm hoping that Peter invites me down to New Orleans because I've never been to Carnival or Mardi Gras or anything like that. So. That's an open request there, Peter. There you go. Open invitation for you, Rob. <laughs> I can say that I've been to Jazz Fest in New Orleans. Peter had some wonderful recommendations. It is an amazing time for those of you that have had the opportunity or are thinking about it. I'd highly recommend a trip to New Orleans. Well, gentlemen, we've actually said we talk about this topic quite a bit, but we haven't actually mentioned what it is. So, John, I'm going to turn things over to you to kind of emcee us and guide us through our educational discussion for this podcast. Yeah, absolutely, Mike. So I want everyone to think back to the last time they were in the room with a sick patient who you remember they needed to be intubated. And this can be a really high stress time, maybe lots of anxiety, depending on you know what's going on, at least with maybe everyone else in the room. Maybe you're calm, cool, collected. You're going through your checklist of mental things you need. Yeah, I got my suction set up, got oxygen ready with RT. All my airway equipment is kind of laid out, ready to go. I got my monitors, end title CO2, and what meds do I need? And you look over to your resident, or maybe it's your nurse or even the pharmacist who's asking you, doc, what medications do you want? 
And it's interesting, everywhere you go, there's probably going to be a different culture around what medications you might use for RSI. And so this paper that was published just in December, right before the Christmas holiday by Gerald Machette and his colleagues at UT Southwestern aimed to address this time-old question of, should we use Atomidate? Should we use ketamine for emergency endotracheal intubation? And that was actually the title of the trial, Atomidate versus Ketamine for Emergency Endotracheal Intubation, a randomized control trial, and it was published in Intensive Care Medicine just a few months ago. So maybe we can start going through the paper, the background, and what they found, certainly because I'm curious to know what the outcome was. Mike, maybe tell us a little bit about the background. Absolutely. Thanks, John, for getting this discussion started. And as you mentioned, these are two common agents we choose as our sedative during the course of RSI in the emergency department. And over the years, we've had a number of observational studies that have looked at the use of Atomidate versus ketamine. And I think we even covered within the past year, some articles that were published right really at the end of 2020 that generated some additional controversy, lots of discussion. And one in particular was an analysis of the near database, remember the National Emergency Airway Registry, in which that particular study in academic emergency medicine in normotensive patients, what they found is that those that actually received ketamine compared to those that received etomidate actually had a higher incidence of peri-intubation hypotension and a need for treatment of that peri-intubation hypotension. And that particular study generated lots of discussion. And within that discussion, Many folks leaned farther back in the literature, talking about a little bit more rigorous study that took a look at over 600 patients in an RCT-type fashion and really didn't find any statistically different rates in hypotension or that post-intubation cardiovascular collapse between patients that got etomidate or those that got ketamine for RSI. And as a result, you know, we've continued to have this debate at least over the past 12 months. Well, what is the ideal agent? Is there an ideal agent for a sedative use in RSI when we go to intubate our critically ill patient? And having said that, this is the latest really RCT that has been published just a few weeks ago that asked the question, was there a difference in short-term survival? So not 30-day, not 90-day survival, but looking at survival out to day seven in critically ill patients who were intubated using etomidate or ketamine as the sedative during RSI. Awesome, Mike. Yeah. And so this is a really important question. Short-term outcomes are very important. We're thinking about an intervention in critically ill patients. So Rob, tell us a little about the trial design and the setting of the trial. Yeah, John. So this was a prospective randomized open label trial performed over a four-year period at a single center, UT Southwestern Medical Center, a great, great medical school. And RSI was performed by dedicated anesthesia airway teams that were separate from the clinical ICU teams. And this was mostly conducted in the ICUs at UT Southwestern. And screening for enrollment was based on the clinical opinion of the airway team lead. If there was a belief that one drug would be more appropriate, then that patient was not enrolled. Otherwise, inclusion criteria were that they had to be an adult patient needing RSI. And the exclusion criteria were pregnancy, children, previously enrolled patients, patients requiring awake intubation, 
neurologically obtunded patients and cardiac arrest patients. In terms of their sample size, they were powered to detect a 10% difference in day seven survival if 750 patients were enrolled and they were allowed to enroll up to 825 patients with the assumption that they might have about a 10% dropout rate. Awesome. Yeah. So these guys really had their statistical methods down in terms of how they powered the trial with a pretty large size. So this is going to be something that I think is set up to produce some evidence that should impact our clinical care. Peter, what were the interventions? What did they do? So here's the choice. So we know that it was either atomidate or ketamine. They did have some decisions to make on whether they wanted atomidate at 0.2 to 0.3 mg per kg given IV or ketamine one to two megs per kg IV. So there was some variability there. The doses were allowed to be adjusted based on what really the provider's clinical judgment was. So from the airway interventions, were variable at the discretion, again, of the same airway team, but generally they used a head-up approach, 20 to 30 degrees positioning. They pre-oxygenated the patient's all these sedatives were followed by neuromuscular blocking agents. They used an intubating stylet, not necessarily a bougie, but an intubating stylet, use of cricoid pressure, confirmation utilizing end-tidal CO2, and treatment of post-intubation hypotension with bolus-dosed vasopressors and IV fluids. So push-dose pressors were the rigor, right, for any treatment for post-intubation hypotension. And then the trial endpoints, they looked at a primary endpoint, seven-day survival, and secondary endpoints of some other measures that were pretty good. One was the proportion survived on study day 28, so looked at 28-day survival, the duration of mechanical ventilation, the ICU length of stay, a vasopressor requirement, a new diagnosis of adrenal insufficiency, day one through four after intubation. And then they also finally looked at SOFA scores. Wonderful. Yeah. So it sounds like that the clinicians were basically handed a sealed envelope with a medication and were given some latitude in terms of deciding how much in terms of dosing to give the patients, but they had no idea leading into the RSI, which one they were going to get. So good form in terms of blinded fashion, as far as you could go, aside from just giving a unlabeled medication to the patient. So Mike, tell us what they found. Tell us about the results. All right. So where the rubber meets the road. So in general, they had 801 patients that they enrolled in this study. Now, something that we'll allude to a little bit later in our discussion of the potential limitations of this study is they screened a whole lot more. So they ended up excluding quite a number of patients, but nonetheless, they enrolled 801 patients that essentially evenly divided between the ketamine and atomidate groups. And in general, the majority of these patients were actually intubated on medical floors. And about 50% of this group ended up being diagnosed with sepsis before or immediately post-intubation. Overall, characteristics between those that got ketamine and those that got atomidate were fairly well balanced. It is worth noting that the mean MAP pre-intubation was on the higher end, 80 to 85. The mean atomidate dose 
0.2 milligrams per kilogram, and the mean ketamine dose was 1.2 milligrams per kilogram. So I think overall, very reasonable doses. And first pass success was about 91%. So overall, high first pass success. And rocuronium was the most commonly used paralytic. So this seems to really replicate many of our practices, I would say. Now, in terms of the primary outcome, that day seven survival, well, it actually was higher in those that received ketamine compared to those that got Atomidate. And we're talking on the order of about 85% versus about 77%. Now, what about day 28? So there was a difference in seven-day survival, more favorable for those that got ketamine during their RSI, but really that disappeared by day 28. And there was no statistically significant difference in 28-day survival. Other secondary outcomes, no difference in the diagnosis of adrenal insufficiency. But what I would say is similar to that near database analysis and a few other of the observational studies I alluded to is that post-intubation hypotension that required intervention, namely push dose or bolus dose vasopressors, actually was more common in ketamine, which may be counterintuitive to what many of us think compared to those that got etomidate. So John, that's overall surprising seven-day mortality difference in favor of ketamine that disappeared by day 28. Yeah, I agree. I definitely was a little bit surprised in reading that. And we'll talk about what this all means in a second. But Rob, maybe I'll start out with you and then maybe I'll go to Peter and then we can wrap back up, circle back with Mike. Tell me about what your thoughts are about this peri-intubation hypotension finding. Does it surprise you? Is it something that maybe you were expecting based off of your experience? I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, so that peri-intubation hypotension is somewhat surprising to me, although it aligns with the data that we have from their NEAR study performed by our colleague Nick Moore and others. And it does align with some other smaller observational studies among patients with shock. It's hard to understand the pathophysiology behind that, behind why ketamine would result in more hypotension. And it's notable that this hypotension occurred even with a reduced dose of ketamine that was used in a few patients, but it appears to be a real finding. However, I'm not really sure that it's as big a deal in terms of an outcome. This study was powered to looking at seven-day survival. And for once, a study actually showed a difference in seven-day survival. The study showed what it was intended to show. So taking that into account, I'm less worried about this peri-intubation hypotension and more intrigued by the fact that they found increased seven-day survival with ketamine. Yeah, Rob, that's a great point. The authors really designed a study to look at seven-day outcomes, and that's what they focused on. And there's always going to be secondary outcomes and things that are going to bring up lots of questions, but that wasn't the primary intent here. And so that's a great point to bring back the focus on this primary finding. Peter, I don't know, what are your thoughts in terms of the outcomes or even just the study in general? Any additional thoughts? Yeah, just a few thoughts. I would agree with Rob that, you know, the big deal is the big deal, the primary outcomes. But some things that I thought were kind of interesting is we really don't know how often push dose pressors amount was used, right? Was it one dose of push dose pressors, serial doses? We know that 
we didn't really have to hang norepinephrine on these folks long-term. We answered that, but we don't know if it was just one dose or not. We also don't know whether we performed RSI on people with shock index or not. And was that a predictor in this case? But again, I think it's somewhat counterintuitive that we would see more hypotension or more push dose pressors in the ketamine group. One of the other things I would like to see, you know, with 80% of the time rocuronium being used, those people who received Atomidate were probably awake and paralyzed a good bit of the time, because that's a little frightening. And we presented that here before, understanding that Atomidate clears pretty quickly and you're using rocuronium. So they'll be paralyzed and not adequately sedated. Less of a risk with that with ketamine, still a risk, but less of a risk that with ketamine. I'm a little concerned about that. And again, for our listeners just who are in the ED, one of my style points when we're doing airway is to ask for the sedative, ask for the paralytic, and then ask for what are we going to do long-term for sedation? And then if there's somebody with the shock index, make sure that I have a bag of norepi mixed and ready to roll. Because I'm not a huge fan of push dose pressors unless you don't have a mixed bag of norepi handy. Excellent points, Peter. I know this was a ICU type setting study, but what do you think about its generalizability to the emergency department? Is this something you think applies to us? Great question, John. And I would say a few things on this particular study and a few things in general. Strictly from analyzing this article, single center, open label. So it does beg the question, is it generalizable? It was primarily in critically ill patients intubated on a medical floor. So strictly speaking, is it the crashing patient in the ED? No, but I think this is important information that we can glean from and affect our practice. So with each of these papers that we talk about, what's the take-home message at the end of the day? What do we want to do differently, if anything at all, with the next time we intubate a critically ill patient? And highlighting this change or difference in seven-day mortality, does that mean the next time in my next many RSIs, I'm going to routinely grab ketamine and only exclusively use ketamine because there may be a mortality difference as shown in this particular study. And I think that's a little too drastic. I think that thinking about each patient's physiology, choosing what I feel is the best RSI combination of medications for that patient. I think this validates our use of ketamine and that it is an important component to someone's care. It may, it may have mortality benefit. We'll see. And the analogy that we just talked about last month when we had the bougie trial and compared it to the single center beam trial that did show bougie first, and then in a more randomized multi-center fashion, that kind of faded away in terms of statistical significant difference. So I, I think both agents can be used with RSI. I think this is important to note that there may, in a single center in this patient population, be a signal of increased mortality. And I think with respect to the peri-intubation hypotension, it reaffirms exactly what we had discussed with that 2020 review when we talked about that article, is that ketamine in and of itself is still a myocardial depressant. And so there will be patients where it will result in peri-intubation hypotension or cardiovascular collapse. And we need to be ready for that, just as Peter said. And to really just go to a much higher level, the things that we've talked about for several podcasts, identifying who's at risk, 
for a peri-intubation cardiovascular collapse. Those risk factors, just to restate, pre-intubation hypoxemia, pre-intubation hypotension, and an elevated shock index, and you could use 0.8 or greater than 0.9 as your threshold. Those are the three top things that really identify this patient's at greatest risk. Whether you choose etomidate or ketamine, leaning maybe perhaps a little bit more towards ketamine at appropriate doses in that particular patient, have at it, but get that vasopressor infusion primed, ready. And even with my last intubation, I actually started it prior to pushing RSI medications because someone I felt was very high risk of having peri-intubation cardiovascular collapse. And not surprisingly, they did. So those would be my take-home pearls, those key risk factors that identify someone for peri-intubation hypotension, continue to use ketamine, and in some cases, etomidate for those RSI medications, have a healthy appreciation that even ketamine may result in the peri-intubation cardiovascular collapse. And really, in addition to your post-intubation analgesic and sedative, get that vasopressor in the room, ready, if not running during the course of RSI. Well, I can't think of a better way to end a podcast than that simple summary from the three of you guys. I don't have much more to add. It's like you're inside my brain. And not only that, I think I even picked up a couple learning points on that myself. So awesome job. Thank you guys so much for going through this article with me. And this has been a real pleasure. Thanks, Sean, for leaning us through that discussion. If you have any additional questions, please shoot us an email through the podcast site. As always, I've said we've loved corresponding with you, whether that be through the website, whether it be through Twitter or any other social media sites. But before I hop off, before we wrap this up, Peter, I sense that you had any final comments in there. No, I just thought that that was a great way of doing it. I think that we have to be very thoughtful and create the full plan, not just the intubation plan, but the peri-RSI plan for our patients. And the more that we think like that, the safer our patients will be. Well said. Rob, any final thoughts? Yeah, I like everything you said, all three of you. I would just make a push to tailor your choice of RSI medications. In other words, we shouldn't treat people one size fits all. We shouldn't always reflexively choose one agent over another. And so how does that go into play with this, my choice of RSI meds? Well, if if I have somebody who's septic and I'm intubating them for sepsis, I'm going to lean away from etomidate and I'm going to use ketamine in almost all of those patients. And similarly, I would say if I have somebody who's an asthmatic and I'm intubating them, yeah, sure, might as well use ketamine. It may be a little bit advantageous in that group as well. And then also consider physiologic parameters. If a patient's like super tachycardic, you know, they're already in the 140 to 150 range, I may shy away from ketamine in those cases. So the message here is that you should not reflexively use always one RSI med. You should tailor your choice according to your individual scenario. Great summary points. And John, I'd be remiss. You are our MC. Close us out here. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think that's really the takeaway here. Like buying a pair of shoes, right? You don't just pick a box off the wall. You find the one that fits you. And, you know, these are all the 
clinical decisions that we have to make on a daily basis about what the right medication is for the patient who's in front of us and weighing all these things. There's not a machine or anybody else that can tell us what the right medication is for our patient. It's something that takes a long time to figure out, but you know, incorporating this type of data into our day-to-day practice is what makes practicing medicine really special. So this was a great reminder of that. And with that, we will bring this podcast to a close on a very important article to get us started here in 2022, one of those that will continue to be talked about, debated, and discussed in the months to come. We are looking forward to having you join us for our next podcast for yet another hot off the press article discussion here on CCPEM. Once again, this is Mike Winters from the University of Maryland School of Medicine. Looking forward to talking to you on our next podcast. Bye for now.